Amen. Hey, if you have a Bible, uh, go to Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is where we're going to be spending our time for this week and the next couple of weeks. We are in a series that we have called Breathing Room, and the Lord is my shepherd. Let's go on to that next slide. There we go. Um, that's my fault, Wyatt. I skipped the video. So we, we started this series last week, and we're looking verse by verse at Psalm 23 and, and what it means that God is our shepherd. Last week, I told you that this psalm is actually uh, a unique poem, a unique song in the Hebrew Scriptures because it addresses God as a shepherd. And much of what we read in the psalms is about God as a warrior, God as a king, God as mighty, God as defender. And this is kind of the softer take that David really needed. As King David wrote this psalm, he was looking looking for God to come close. And so I said to you last week that as we looked at those first couple verses, that once we know who God is, amen, many of us need a reminder of who God is, then we can start to rest in who we are. And I think that's so difficult today. As we talk about breathing room, it can be incredibly difficult to, to, to find peace, to rest, because we're trying to find it in ourselves when, it, when we really need to look at God and who he is. So today I want to talk about the next couple of verses. Um, if you were to travel to Israel today and do the Bible tour thing, they would probably take you at least some point on your trip to the bottom of a valley where all these winter streams have across centuries cut these long, deep crevices out of the rocky desert. And in these valleys, and there's actually one of these that stretches about 17 miles between Jerusalem and Samaria, but in these valleys, they are recognized as the dangerous places. Because of the treacherous terrain and the low-lying valleys, there's usually only one narrow path through these rocky valleys where people can find their ways through. This is why Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan so connected with his audience. They knew this road. They knew the journey from Jerusalem to Samaria. And they knew the road was a haven for thieves and murderers. And these valleys were dangerous because it was hard to move in them. But it wasn't only the potential attackers who might cause harm. In one of these valleys outside the city of Petra, about the mid-20th century, flash floods came sweeping through. And in one moment killed about 50 French tourists. These are literally the valleys of the shadows of death. The threat is always there. And, and, and so I, I, as we start to talk about this today, I want that image in your mind. I, I have this fear that I struggle with. It's probably my biggest fear. How many of you are afraid of heights? Like if we put you up high, okay. So that's not me. I can be up high and, and usually be fine. I'm okay. What I have a fear of, and I know this is weird, but I have a fear of seeing other people up high. Like, I'm good. You're not. I trust my legs. I don't trust your legs. I trust my brain. I don't trust your brain, right? I know. This says a, I need therapy for this. This says a lot about how I approach the world. But that's, that's me. Like, I'm pretty sure I ruined a trip to the Grand Canyon for my kids because I wouldn't let them get anywhere close to the edge. We had like a hundred yard rule. It was kind of like Chevy Chase. Like, there it is. Okay, let's go. Right? Like, you could be a hundred yards away and we're good, but then we went back to the car. I can't handle it. I really can't. What some people feel with your phobias, the spiders, snakes, heights for yourself, I get that if I see anyone close to an edge. Sweat breaks out. I get that pit in my stomach. I just can't handle it. A couple years ago, Carrie and I went with mom and dad to Ireland, and we went to see these cliffs of mohair. You've probably seen images of them. Absolutely amazing. And you can walk right along the edge, and we did. But the entire time, I was stressed out. The entire time we walked and it was incredibly windy. And I'm telling you, all that was running in my mind was some fantasy film of like all these people getting like 
picked up and shot out to sea and thrown in the valley. I'm like, why are these people so stupid to be up here? Why don't they leave and I can go? That's literally what I feel. It's awful. I don't want to end up in a valley, right? And maybe it's my pastor heart, but I don't want you to end up in the valley. But down through the years, I've realized personally, and I've realized with the more people that I've watched, we will all, at one time or another, be in the valley or the valleys. Some of you feel like you're in lots of them. Marriages will enter the valley. Individuals will enter the valley. You'll walk in there with your emotions, depression, anxiety, fear, anger, whatever it is. Families will enter valleys. We have seasons where there is sickness, there's death, there's discouragement. Churches will enter valleys. There's financial stress. There's, there's transition. There's relational hurt. We've been there. And here's the question that I want to ask today. How do we breathe when we're in the valley? Like, how do we breathe when we're in these places of loneliness and fear and anxiety? When death is literally peering down at us, what should we do? Is there breathing room when everything around us is falling apart? Carrie and I, before we, um, before we were here and before we were in Michigan, we had a short stint in P- Penn State University. And we were, uh, we were really committed to each other, but we were really struggling. And we had gone there to launch a nonprofit, and finances were bad. And it was like the moment in Dumb and Dumber where it was like we got no job, we got no, our pets' heads are falling off. Like that's literally where we were. And there was a point where I, I will never forget this. We are just sitting around this, this rented condo and we're talking about all this stress. And Malia had to be, I don't know how old she was, maybe four at that point, five. And she had flushed the toilet and the toilet, I, all we heard was her in the bathroom going, no, 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 no. And the water starts spilling out. And in the middle of this valley, we looked at each other, and she's crying, and we just start laughing. How do you breathe in the valley, right? Let's look at the next part of Psalm 23 and see what we might find about breathing in the middle of the valley. We read the first few verses last week. Look at verse 1. Here's what it says again, just as a reminder. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want that unwavering declaration of trust God you are my shepherd I don't need anything else and then the psalmist says he settles me down in green pastures remember that we talked about sheep will not lie down until they're fed so God satisfies us so that we can rest he leads us beside still waters he wants us to drink from the the quiet then it says he brings me back he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake now I don't know about you but I love these first few verses of this psalm Green pastures, right? Still waters. God right beside us. This sounds like vacation. It sounds like the oasis. But then we get to verse 4 and everything changes. Look at the beginning of verse 4. Even though, everybody say even though. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now did you catch this change? No more are we in green pastures lounging or lapping up tranquil waters. We aren't on good paths here. Now we are the pack mule working our way treacherously down the rim of the Grand Canyon. We're moving over the edge and barely hanging on, working our way down the cliffs of Jerusalem, down that 17-mile journey towards Samaria. We are literally God's sheep wandering into terrifying territory. So the psalmist describes where he's walking, but then he makes this claim. David says this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and then underline, highlight, circle, write this down, put it on your forehead, wherever, I will fear no evil. 
Now, something jumps out here, doesn't it? Something, at least for me, seems odd. We can talk about the valleys. We can talk about the threats and the fears, the the dangers, the unforeseen disasters that often come at us. And we can ask the question that I asked you earlier, how can we breathe in these valleys? But apparently, King David, the writer of this psalm, had figured it out. He walks into the valley, and then he says, even though I'm here, I will fear no evil. So before we talk about how he does it, let's think about this for a moment because it's absolutely critical that we grab this. David writes something here that I believe as humans unmasks us. It reveals us for the very nature of our heart, for who we are, for what we try to hide in reality a majority of the time. David says something about himself that says something about all of us. You have to get this because the reality is, and write this down, pay attention to this, it is never the valley that destroys us, it's the fear of the valley. It's not the valley that does us in. It's the fear of getting into the valley. I believe the greatest hindrance to human thriving is not the valleys we find ourselves in, but rather the fear of entering the valley. You get this, right? David says, I'm going to end up in this valley. I'm going to face evil. Notice that he doesn't deny the existence of evil. He doesn't say, oh, it's no big deal. I'll just ignore it. I'll turn on Netflix and I don't have to deal with the rest of life. He doesn't say, I'll self-medicate my way through the valley. Some of you, that would be comforting. He says, even though I'm going to be up against it, I will fear no evil. There's another valley in Palestine, and just like we've talked about, and it's often called literally the valley of the shadow of death, and shepherds know it. It's about five miles long, and even at its widest section, it's no more than 12 feet across. So it's a tight, narrow path through the rocks, through the valley. And it can flash flood, and the actual path is solid rock, and so it's narrow. And one shepherd says, in certain places, it's so narrow that sheep can hardly turn around if there's danger. Now think about this, right? We get into the valley. David says, I will fear no evil, but but here's the reality. See, sheep in the valley have no choice but to go forward. Sheep in the valley of the shadow of death don't get the option, at least in the imagery that King David is using as a former shepherd in this Middle Eastern culture. You knew that you had to go through. You couldn't even turn around. Now, I know this isn't the most comforting part of this message, but you have to get this. You and I will end up in the valley. Amen? You've been there. Maybe you are there. We will find ourselves in rocky, narrow places, places where we feel flooded, places where we face threat and danger and the fear of death and destruction, and those things will be with us constantly in our minds. Don't you hate the way stuff looms in your mind? We'll find ourselves in places where we have only one choice, no way out of the valley, no way to go back, and we are simply called, watch this, to go through, to go through. And let me tell you, the fear will be overwhelming. And if you give in to it, if you surrender that fear, you will find yourself crippled because the fear is what keeps us from living fully into who God made us to be. And for you to live fully as you're meant to be, as God created you to be, you will have to find your way forward by going through this valley, not around it, not away from it, not over it, not backtracking, but straight on through it. Paul gets this. The Apostle Paul gets this. In 2 Corinthians 12, he speaks of this struggle that he has in his life and this thing, this thorn in his flesh that just kept coming. Most scholars don't know if this was a chronic illness, if there was something that Paul was suffering from, but here's what he says about this thorn in his flesh. Look at verse 8, his own personal valley. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Have you ever prayed for God to take the valley away? 
God, could you send in that helicopter and get me out of this? Verse 9, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And then watch what Paul says here. This is so amazing to me. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, now watch this phrase, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Some of us, if we could just say those words, I delight in weaknesses. We preached a message here one time and said, embrace the suck. I delight in those things. That's what Paul's saying here. When they come, I know that's the chance for God to show up stronger in my life. See, what if, what if the first step, think about this, what if the first step to finding breathing room in the valley is embracing the journey through the valley? What if you're not going to be able to breathe until you say, i got to go all into this? I, I can't breathe. David says, I have to face it, but I don't have to dwell in it. Amen? You've got things you have to face, but you don't have to live there. That's what we're called to. You may have to say the same thing. I have to go that way, but I don't have to stay there. And the fear leading up to it will be overwhelming. How many of you have had hard conversations that you knew you had to have? You knew they were coming. You knew it was going to be difficult. You knew you had to deal with this stuff. And the dread, the fear, the anxiety is the most crippling part. What I've found repeatedly is that when I actually get to the hard conversation and move into that, it's still hard, but it's not nearly as bad as the lead up to getting there. When we choose to go through the valley, we find the way God lets us breathe in the valley. Here's how David found his hope. Look at the next part of verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Then he says, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now we're going to talk about the rod and the staff in just a second. But just notice that phrase, for you are with me. I want you to notice something about this part of the song here in verse 4, the piece about the valley of the shadow of death, if you were to study this poem, it's the climax, right? It's the centerpiece of Psalm 23. That's the point where we go, oh man, this guy is in trouble. He's on the dangerous road. What's going to happen? And then we see David's declaration in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death. He says, I will fear no evil. And we all go, how? We've been there. How do you not fear evil? And David in his powerful prayer maybe goes quiet. And says directly to God. By the way, this is the first point in this psalm where David speaks directly to God. In the middle of the valley, David gets more intimate with God than ever before. He says, I will fear no evil. How, David? For you are with me. For you are with me. Friends, breathing in the valley happens when we realize God is close to us. God is close to us. Closer than a brother, the scriptures say. You ever watch the scary movie and it gets to the really critical point and you don't know what's going to happen and you're not sure and, and whoever the, the hero is isn't there and the hero's sidekick is on their own or their, their love interest is right there and you're just waiting, you don't know what's around the corner and all of a sudden there's this jump scene and the hero is right back with the, the, the companion. That's the moment where we go, okay, it's going to be okay because the hero's here. And I think this is what David's saying. He says, I, I'm alone. I got nothing. But God, you are with me, so I will fear no evil. By the way, this was the story of Israel. This was the story of God's people. Deuteronomy 4, verse 7, the Israelites claim this. What other nation is so great? The Israelites look around and say, what other nation is like us as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? 
See, for the other nations, listen, and don't miss this. I would still say this is true for other religions, for other people groups. The gods were idols who lived in sacred space. If you wanted to get the gods to work on your behalf, you had to show up on their territory. You had to punish yourself, repent, do all the things to earn the favor of the false gods. And when they left worship, those gods stayed right where they are. But then there's Israel. And Israel's freed from slavery with a God who meets with them in the tabernacle in the wilderness. But when they move, what happens with God? Yahweh himself, he moves with them. He goes with them. And by the way, Jesus followers, this is not an Old Testament Jewish story. This is our story. This is our story. For you are with me is the same statement we claim every Advent. It's the same statement we believe every time we pray. We have a God who comes close, a God who draws near, a God who steps out of heaven to be with us. And the implications of this should overwhelm us. Because God came close, we should fear no evil. Because God came close, we should not look for comfort in any other entity. We've lived through a season. We're a year into this where so many of us continue to misplace our hope, misplace our courage in governments or systems of authority, in the world as we think it ought to function. And if so, and so, are in power, uh, or if our team is winning, everything will be okay. And we're so stressed out. Aren't you? Aren't your friends? We're so overwhelmed by fear because often in our world today, we're watching our systems fall apart, our leaders fail, our cultural idols fall off their shelves and crumble like dust. God, you are with us. You are with me. So even in this moment, I want that phrase to just resound through you. I want you to think about the answer to this question very specifically. Come up with an answer here. What is the valley that you're facing right now? What is the valley of the shadow of death that seems so looming in your life? And I'd love to invite you for 10 seconds to close your eyes and just speak those words of prayer in your heart and your mind out loud if you need to. You are with me. Let's pray that together. Just close your eyes. I want you to think about that valley. God, you are with me. Let those words resound because that may be all you need today. Oh, fear no evil for you are with me. Amen. But David doesn't end there, does he? He extends his claim of hope in the valley of the shadow. He says, you are with me. And then he adds something else, this weird phrase that says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So let's talk about this. I talked about sheep last week. I'm going to talk about the shepherd's tools this week because sheep have lots of problems. Amen? There's a sermon there, by the way, too. Last week, we dug into some of their problems. They can't be trained. They're really dumb. They don't drink rushing water. They only lie down when they've had enough to eat. All serious things, right? But actually, sheep have another bigger problem. They have absolutely no defense mechanism. None. Cats have claws, teeth, speed, demonic presence. Dogs have teeth and speed. Horses, they can kick, bite, and run. Deer, at least deer can run and jump. Not faster than my gun. I get it. <laughs> then we come to sheep. They can't bite. They don't have claws. They can't run. One thing that they can do, they butt heads, but only with other sheep. Does this sound like the church? <laughs> but that certainly is not going to help them if a lion attacks. Do you know what this tells us? Listen, the only security, the only defense a sheep can find is in its shepherd. 
Without the shepherd, there is no safety. And that's where a rod and a staff matter. Let me tell you about the rod first and then the staff. The rod is not a walking stick, biblically. The rod is a scepter or a weapon. Primarily, it is an offensive weapon. If you were to study the shepherd's rod, you would find that it was about two and a half feet long and it had a mace-like end with iron pieces often embedded into it. It was a tool. Shepherds would lay the rod across the entrance for a sheep pen, and as they would enter in, he would count the sheep that went under the rod. And if there was one missing, an alarm was sounded, and immediately shepherd went to look for the lost sheep with his rod in hand, because if they found a fierce animal, they could use the mace-like end, and they could attack whatever was attacking the sheep. This tool was a defense and attack. It was a tool to defend the sheep, now don't miss this, against the external threats. Isn't it beautiful that we have a God who will fight for us? Because there are things that are going to come into your life, the valleys of the shadow of death, that you have absolutely no control over. And you have absolutely no defense against chronic illness, unforeseen relationship breakdowns. There are things you cannot control that the only way to fight is to say, God, I can't fight this. Will you defend me with your rod? But then he mentions your staff, your staff, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The staff is lighter and longer than the rod, the staff was what the shepherd leaned on. It used to help climb and walk and direct sheep. He would guide sheep. It was long enough to reach around the edges of the flock and move them in the right direction. Oftentimes, the staff had one end with a crook in it in case a lamb fell, and that, that lamb could then be hooked and lifted out of whatever rev- river or crevice it was in. Now, if the staff is a tool to defend against internal threats, stupid sheep who fall into holes... And the rod is the the defense against the external threats. This brings us to the final principle that I want to share with you today about breathing in the valley. See, I ask you first, what if the first step to finding breathing room in our valleys is actually embracing our journey through the valley? And then I challenge you, encourage you to think that we breathe in the valley when we realize God is close to us. Finally, I want you to hear this. We will make it through the valleys, please don't miss this, by letting the shepherd defend and correct us. We will find our way through the valley of the shadow of death by letting God defend us, yes, and correct us. This is hard, and it's hard in a couple ways, and it will be hard for all of us. First, you've got to realize God will defend us. For God to defend us, you've got to stop thinking that butting your head against something else is the way to defend yourself. You've got to start to surrender. You've got to start to relinquish control. God will take care of the threats. It means we have to recognize our own defenselessness. And surrender is so hard, isn't it? But it's also this point, and I don't want you to miss this. God will correct us. And this is often the harder part. See, we are sheep, and we get in trouble, but sometimes we're stupid. Amen? Amen? Sometimes we're stupid. And Paul says it this way in Romans 2. He says, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Now, I know we're picking up in the middle of this passage. I don't have time to go back to chapter 1 and explain all the stuff Paul's talking about because he he calls out all these sins that the people are, are dealing with and engaged in and all these things they're wrestling with. And Paul says, we know that God's judgment against those who do those sins is based on truth. Then he says in verse 3, so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet you do the same thing, things, do you think you will escape God's judgment, in parentheses, you dumb sheep? Do you not realize you've caused a lot of the pain in your own life? But then there's the hope of the gospel, verse 4, do you, or, or do you show contempt 
And don't miss this. Do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, his forbearance, his patience, not realizing, now watch, that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. How many of you grew up in a a religious setting, a church, where repentance never felt kind? Where guilt was a, a rod and not a staff? Guilt was the weapon that you were attacked with. It was the thing that was slammed over your head, the Bible that you were beaten with. The story here, Paul says, is that God's kindness is the thing that leads us to repentance. His correction is out of love. His discipline is out of care and compassion. His movement in your life to say, hey, you're being really stupid. Get back on the paths of righteousness. See, God is a good enough shepherd that he will correct us when we get off track. He's willing to call us out of our own ignorance. But you can't blame the external threats when you've got an internal problem. You can't do that. See, sin always has consequences. And God calls us, he corrects us, he guides us. By the way, when we talk about pastoral ministry, those of you who are engaged in loving and caring for and walking with others, we're talking about the word pastor as shepherd. This is about guidance and correction. It's about care and compassion. It's all those things in one. If someone loves you enough to tell you the truth about the mess of your own life, you should thank God for them. You should thank God for them for speaking into your life. We live in a culture that doesn't want that. We don't want confronted. We don't want truth spoken to us. We've got to understand this. So let me throw these things out again, and then I'm going to wind down. What if the first step to finding breathing room in your valley is actually embracing the journey through the valley? As we close today, I'm going to have the band come, and we're going to, we're going to actually lean into a time of prayer where we confront what valley you're facing. And maybe that confrontation is saying, God, I'm going through this. I've been trying to get out of it. I've been trying to turn around in it. I've been trying to avoid it, but I'm called to go through it. What if we breathe in the valley when we realize that God is close to us? God is with us. And what if we will find our way through the valleys by letting our shepherd both defend and correct us? In all the places where I've been, where I've been absolutely terrified of seeing other people up high, my fear, right? The story that we told after that was more powerful than my fear. Walking through those places was more powerful than my fear. I'm saying to you today, this this passage, this psalm, this beautiful poem, this song of God's people speaks to us of the very nature of God. He's a good shepherd. He's not out to harm you. He's not out to destroy you. He's not out to beat you over the head. He is out to defend you to guide you, to correct you, to walk with you, to say you are in the pit right now, but you're not alone. Amen? You're in the pit, but you're not alone. So I'm going to have the band come. And as they do, I want to lead us in a time of prayer. We don't always end, in fact, rarely do we end messages this way, but I just, as I was prepping this week, I thought we need to give space for you to be in a space of prayer. And there's an ancient practice of prayer that St. Ignatius used, and it's called Ignatian prayer, and it's centered on this, this reflection in the heart, this growing awareness. It's really intended, Ignatius said, to lead us to a sense of how is God with us? How can we lean into the fact that God is here? And so the discipline of Ignatian prayer is to grow aware of God's presence first. 
oftentimes, I don't know about you, but when I pray, I'm leaning into something and, I, and I'm, I'm almost immediately, God, I need your help in this. God, I need you to deal with this. God, will you do this? God, will you help me? And so I'm approaching God as kind of the ATM. Are you with me? Instead of the presence and the relationship. And so Ignatian prayer calls us into relational, relational awareness. And then it invites us to a posture of gratitude. And I'm going to talk you through a couple of these things as the band begins to play. But then it leads us to two phrases. And I love these phrases of Ignatian prayer. They've, they've become regular habits of mine. These are big words, but I'm going to simplify them. The first is consolation. Where are you experiencing a drawing near to God? Where are you being consoled? Where are you being comforted? And as we pray through this today, I'm even going to invite you to just look at the last 24 hours. Where do you sense God calling you near? It may be just in the sense that you sat down with your family and laughed last night. That may be God's presence. Where are you being consoled by the Spirit of God? Maybe you know, even today, that these words are speaking into your valley. So there's this consolation piece. And then there's this, this other word that is really haunting, but it's the word desolation. Isn't that a threatening word? Where are we being pulled away from God? What, is, what are our emotions telling us? Where are we sensing that anger that just keeps rising up, that fear that keeps coming, that anxiety that won't go away, that, that sorrow, that grief, whatever it is, where are you feeling pulled away from God? Maybe it's in your own relationships where there's just bitterness because I believe in the emotions that we experience. God wants to speak to us as well. So I'm going to invite you just to, to kind of breathe in, breathe out, and let's enter in this space of prayer. And as we pray, I'm going to lead you, and then we'll close with a song. But let's enter this space of prayer together.